0: films one theme. this is words and movies
1: thank you once again Rebecca and I hope your trip back to France went well um hi welcome to the next episode of words and movies I'm your co-host Claude call
0: and I'm your other co-host Sean Gallagher so as we record this episode uh, Boz Lerman's biopic of Elvis Presley, simply called Elvis, has uh, recently been released on demand and to stream or buy, although hopefully uh, less expensive by the time you actually hear this episode. Claude, have you seen it yet?
1: Yes, I have. I liked it a lot. I mean, I could have done without Tom Hanks a little bit, but uh, I, I really enjoyed it. Okay. Oh, I have and, met... and and can I mention something? You know, just a few episodes back we did we did the the Bob Dylan biopic and we right. did, and we did the uh the uh refresh me please cuz my just went blank. Love and
0: Mercy Love and Brian Mercy with
1: Brian Mar- Wilson. The- and remember we said that they had something in common at the end where they ended with footage of the actual performer? We get the yeah. same thing with Elvis. So this seems to be happening a lot lately.
0: Well, I mean, it's not a new thing. It happened um, all the way back with uh, the Tina Turner biopic, What's Love Got to Do With It? But anyway, the reason why I brought up the uh, Elvis biopic is whether or not you think he was the king of rock and roll or you have the same attitude towards him that Chuck D expressed, you must admit that he, along with it must be said, a lot of other people helped revel revolutionize music in the 1950s just as bob dylan helped revolutionize music in the 1960s but what happened before that revolution that's going to be the subject of the two movies which we are discussing today which are from the year 2007 honey dripper Written, directed, and edited by John Sales. And from 2013, Inside Lewin Davis, written, directed, and edited by the Coen Brothers, Ethan and Joel. Although unlike Sales, the Coen Brothers use an alias in order to edit their movies, Roderick James. So both of these movies are period pieces. Honey Dripper takes place in uh, 1950 in Alabama, while Inside Lewin Davis takes place in early 1960s New York City, although there is a trip to Chicago. And both of these movies, while they don't end up with the real version of the person being portrayed singing, they both climax with a performance that basically helped change everything as far as music goes. And we're going to get into that. But first, Claude's going to give us the plot description for Honey Dripper.
1: By golly, I am. And, and as uh, Sean mentioned, it is 1950. We're in rural Alabama, and it is a make or break weekend for the Honey Dripper Lounge and its owner, Tyrone Purvis, who's played by Danny Glover. He owes money to the liquor man, the chicken man, the landlord, and the only reason the honey dripper has electricity is because they're stealing it somehow. Tyrone needs to bring in the young cotton pickers and the local army base recruits into his place and away from Toussaint's, that's the rival joint, across the way. Sonny, who is played by Gary Clark Jr., arrives to this small town by boxcar. He learns that the town's name is Harmony, and given that he wants to be a musician, he thinks that this is a good sign. Sonny is carrying around an electric guitar that he built himself. The train attendant tells him to go to the Honey Dripper for a meal on his behalf. On his way in, Sonny bumps into a blind guitar player sitting on a porch who's only too happy to explain to Sonny and the audience what they haven't picked up yet. His name is Possum, and he's played by Keb Moe. Tyrone talks to him once in a while throughout the film, and at one point Possum begins to play Stagger Lee, and Tyrone notes that he hates that song. Anyway, when Sonny gets to the Honey Dripper, he's rejected by Tyrone as a musician, but he does offer him the breakfast. Tyrone dismisses his regular talent. That would be blues singer Bertha Mae Spurvin, who's played by Dr. Mabel John, and he tells his sidekick Maceo, uh, played by Charles Dutton, Charles S. Dutton, that he has hired the famous electric guitar player Guitar Sam for a special one-night-only gig. If he can fill the joint for that performance he can save the club. Maceo tells him that he will need to pay Guitar Sam up front with $50, and he hasn't got that kind of money. In the meantime, uh, Mace has his own problems. Nadine, uh, who's played by Davinia McFadden, the local seamstress is after him to get married. Everybody thinks she's good marriage material because she cooks well, she supports herself as a seamstress, and she's always smiling. But he also knows the story of her ex fiance whom she hit with a pot because he was unfaithful to her. Tyrone goes to visit Bertha. Uh, He's going to offer her a share of the business as a means of getting the $50 that he'll need to pay Sam. But when he and his stepdaughter, China Doll, who's played by Yaya DaCosta, arrive at Bertha's house, he learns that she died overnight. Tyrone sends China doll to get her mother so she can help prepare the body for the funeral. And while he's sitting with the body, he thinks long and hard about stealing a piece of jewelry right off her body so that he can sell it and get the cashios. But ultimately, he does the right thing. Sonny encounters uh, Sheriff Pugh, played by Stacy Keach, who is suggesting that he's a vagrant. So he takes him to the corrupt Judge Gatlin, who is um, played by Danny Vinson. He pays Sheriff Pugh $3 a day for each handpick of cotton that he can provide. Sonny Sonny hasn't done anything illegal, but just being in harmony without a job is reason enough. One of the hand picks tells Sonny how to do the job and take it easy, largely by changing his pose and getting into rhythm. We meet Tyrone's wife Delilah, played by Lisa Gay Hamilton. She's being pressured by the local minister to get involved in the church, up to the point of getting Tyrone, whom he considers to be a bad person, largely because of a rumor that Tyrone killed a man over a pretty girl. Delilah is the cook at the Honey Dripper, but the bar is going so bad financially that she has to make ends meet by being a servant of the pews. On the day of the show, the train arrives and Guitar Sam isn't on it. One of the conductors says that Sam is in a Baton Rouge hospital probably because of an overdose. This was predicted by Possum only moments earlier when he told Tyrone that his luck wouldn't change because of anybody coming off that train. Tyrone is forced to make some desperate moves. He cuts a deal with Sheriff Pugh to release Sonny, which involves accepting Pew as a co-owner in the Honey Dripper. Pew is obsessed with Delilah's home cooking, although throughout the film, the audience is led to believe that Pew is after Delilah herself with comments like, I prefer dark meat. In the end, it turns out that it only means Pew's wife is a horrible cook, and so he prefers Delilah's for a change. He expects to be able to get Delilah's cooking whenever he's in the honey Delilah, on the other hand, is furious at Tyrone because he's gotten into the money that she's been stashing away for China Dolls Beauty School tuition. He'd intended to put it back after the show, but at this point, it's unclear whether that really makes a difference. In fact, Delilah isn't at the club as the show starts. She's in the revival tent, and the uh, service is at the point where the preacher is calling people down to be saved. She stands up, and she starts to walk slowly toward the front as the preacher continues calling, framing it as a choice to be made between the world and the Lord. Tyrone and Maceo have uh, planned a scheme to pass off uh, Sonny as the real guitar Sam just long enough to kill the power and run off with the cash box. Now, the power cutting out isn't uncommon at the Honey Dripper because of Maceo's rigging the electricity, but Sonny has actually repaired the fuse box. That doesn't make it impossible for them to pull off the scheme, but when Sonny does actually take the stage and begins to play, Tyrone calls it off and lets the show continue. Sheriff Pugh shows up and demands a chicken sandwich. Tyrone panics briefly because he knows that Delilah isn't the one in the kitchen, and Pew is partial specifically to her cooking, plus the deal he had cut earlier. Fortunately, Delilah almost magically appears beside Tyrone and asks him whether he would prefer the regular or the spicy chicken. So, the customers are having a great time, and the joint is jumping, and in fact, at one point, Sonny walks outside with his guitar to lure over customers from the other bar nearby. One of the customers calls Sonny a fake, but he says that the customer is confusing him with Creole, Sam, and the rest of the customers hush him up so that the party can continue. When the owner of the building comes to collect his rent, as agreed earlier, it's pretty clear that his goal was to to put Tyrone out of business altogether. But when he finds out that Pew is an investor in the business now, he realizes that Tyrone's eviction isn't going to happen. Pew finishes his sandwich, and he leaves. Tyrone spots Possum at the bar with his guitar, although he's as though he's ready to play with the band, but Possum turns his head to his right. Tyrone follows the turn to spot a couple of men squaring off against each other, arguing about a girl. Tyrone has a flashback to when he was younger and got into a nearly identical fight, only that one ended tragically. So, it turns out that the rumor about Tyrone's past was true. He and Maceo step in just as the weapons emerge, and they stop the fight. Shortly thereafter, we see that Sonny's appearances at the Honey Dripper have been held over for more shows. Tyrone spots Possum walking past the bar. It turns out he's leaving town because he says he's not needed there anymore. He's just going to head on down the road a ways. Tyrone bids him farewell, at which point Maceo steps out of the club and asks Tyrone who he's talking to. When Tyrone turns back to the road, nobody's there. So he says he was just talking to himself. And we're left to wonder whether Possum was ever there at all.
0: Okay, so there are, or were, a couple of, elements that sales brought together for this movie, or should I say, drew inspiration from for this movie. One of which, as you might have guessed, was the fact that in the 1950s, this being, of course, way pre-internet and way pre-before photographs of people were made highly available to the rest of the world that bar owners in the south and maybe other areas as well if they were having live musicians come since there was no photograph available of many of these musicians to advertise that if one person who was supposed to be the guy or woman that they were booking was uh, was supposed to show and didn 't they could book someone else in their place and pass them off as the real person that they had meant to book all along and that of course, is the basic plot of this movie that gary clark 's character, Sonny, is passed off as guitar Sam. Even though he is not, because the real one doesn't show up. The other, or another um, element that inspired this movie, although this one was more a loose inspiration, is Sales wrote a short story called Keeping Time which is about a rhythm and blues band. It's included in his short story collection, Dillinger and Hollywood, though it is very different. For one thing, it's set in the present day, the short story is, that is, whereas Honey Dripper, again, is a period piece. But I guess he took some research that he did in order to write that story when he decided to do Honey Dripper. And then the third major inspiration that um, went into this making of this movie, even though they don't talk about it by name, is Tyrone's backstory is very, very loosely based on the story that inspired one of the best-known songs, to come out of the earliest 20th century, Stagger Lee. Uh, Stagger Lee is based on a uh, pimp by the name of Lee Shelton, who was living in St. Louis in the late 19th century, and Stagley was his nickname, and he got into a fight over a woman just as tyrone did in his backstory and just as um the two guys in the bar near in the honey dripper near the end almost do until tyrone manages to break it up now it's been the song that was written by written and inspired by it uh was first published in 1911 And although it's been recorded many, many, many times, the version, yes, the (laughs) version that I have is by a band called Pacific Gas and Electric. uh, It's from a 1970 album, although their version of the song was included on the soundtrack to Quentin Tarantino's movie Death Proof. But the most famous version of the song is arguably by a singer by the name of Lloyd Price. And Claude, uh, you uh, have just done an episode on that song, correct?
1: Uh, yeah, well, it was a few episodes ago as you listened to this. It would be episode number 161.
0: Okay, so he will have more details about the song in his podcast episode, but I just wanted to bring up the fact that this was a major inspiration for this movie, even though the only real mention we get of the song is that at one point Possum is playing it. Uh, when he's outside this train station. It's only a brief snatch of the song, and then obviously, as I said, it makes up Tyrone's backstory. Now, this movie wasn't widely seen when it came out, so be sure not a lot of sales movies have done particularly big box office, with the possible exceptions of Return of the Secaucus Seven and Lone Star, but again, that's only comparative box office. But while you know, I don't think that this is top tier sales. I do think he does a good job of bringing all of these elements together to make a good movie. Claude, what did you think of this movie?
1: I did, and I, it's it's interesting because I, having seen this film, and then I, you know, doing a little bit of the the research that I do to to write this up, and I do, you know, do some some backstory stuff. And one of the things I saw was that there was one critic, and I I wish I could remember his name, but he, but he wrapped it, he summed it up very nicely. When he said something about you, you kind of have to get past the, some of the stereotypes that, that sales put into this film, as far as, you know, things like, you know, the, you know, sheriff cracker and, you know, picking cotton and, you know, that kind of thing. And, and just a lot of stuff like that. Once you, once you get over that, you know, you you really do get a really good piece of film here. And, and it's, it's, it's just like the characters are interesting. Everybody is well cast and, and, you know, and, and it it just, it just works. You know, there are a lot of times you could put all those different elements together and you would just be like, oh boy, this is terrible. But, but sales really, really makes this one work the way it should.
0: Well, I wasn't going to get into the cotton picking and the sheriff right away, but Mm -hmm. since you brought it up, we might as well. Um, You have to remember, as far as the cotton picking goes, that Jim Crow was still in full force in uh, 1950s Alabama, and also... If you saw the movie, uh, the documentary 13th by Ava DuVernay that was on Netflix a few years ago, you know that even though that amendment, you know, ostensibly said that African-Americans were free, were granted the same rights as white Americans, there is a little bit of an addition there. Uh, as long as they are not criminals or have not been convicted of a crime. I forget the exact wording. And if you were a vagrant or considered a vagrant, then you were arrested and shipped off to work in one of these cotton fields back in the day. And this was almost like a prison farm, even though they're not in a chain gang or anything like that. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, they are prisoners or slaves here. So the fact that we have this here is sales showing us honestly what anyone who isn't lucky enough to have means of support like tyrone ostensibly with his bar or delilah you know working as a maid they might get stuck working in one of these cotton fields oh oh yeah and and
1: absolutely i mean he also drew the line between there are people there who are working and there are people there who are prisoners so some of these guys are doing their thing and they're getting paid for it and others at the end of the day they're going to jail they're spending the night in jail and then they come out again and go back out to the field So he, he's, he's definitely showing us you know two different groups of people who are working out in that cotton field
0: right and by the way one of the guys who plays one of the workers in the cotton field is played by Sean Patrick Thomas, who was probably best remembered now as the guy who played the male lead opposite Julia Stiles in the first Save the Last Dance movie. And uh, as far as the sheriff goes, it is true that the southern sheriff is a stereotypical character uh, but as Roger Ebert points out in his review, although Stacy Keach's character um, Sheriff Pugh is racist, mm-hmm. he's also pretty lazy. Yeah, you know he's not doing anything more than he absolutely has to. So he's not Bull Connor or anything like that. Or at least maybe because he's not challenged so much, he's not bull Connor. Um, now, I would disagree with you somewhat on your interpretation about his attitudes towards Delilah. While I do agree that, you know, he definitely likes her cooking. Um, I think he's also looking to sleep with her as well. I don't know if you saw or noticed the disappointed look on his face when Delilah came out with the food that she had, uh, that had been promised to him. You know, obviously he wants to eat the food, although he says that his stomach can't handle spicy food. But I think the implication is there that he also wouldn't mind sleeping with her either. Uh,
1: you know, I, I can concede that you, you might be right. Um, that, you know there are a couple of things, and I and this is one of the things I like about this film. There there are some subtleties in here that you can interpret things different ways, and and um, there, there's another one that I think is is pretty important to the whole film that I think we're going to get to a little bit later.
0: Well, I was actually going to bring it up right now. If wow, it's we what are I'm so out of about. sync today. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's uh, are you thinking about possum? Yes. Yes. Okay. okay. Well, and does
1: this guy exist or not? And you could yeah. easily say throughout the film, Oh, he's just a figment of, of Tyrone's imagination because there's nobody around on the street when he does the bit about singing, um, singing, singing Stagger Lee. Um, there's nobody around when he's at the train station and he suddenly appears because yeah. I did actually stop and rewind. I was like, wait a minute. I didn't see him on the, on the platform and I did back it up. And Well, you know, there's like some stuff on the platform that could conceivably be obscuring him. But I was like, no, I'm pretty sure he's not there. And then you get the scene at the end. And I said, okay, he's a ghost or, you know, figment of Tyrone's imagination. And then I said, wait a minute.
0: He talked to Sonny. (laughs) Yeah. So he is a ghost.
1: So is he? But yeah. But is he a ghost who only talks to musicians? Is he some sort of? other figure is he I, I and, and I, I like that I have to go through this that that I'm being put through this like what what is the nature of of possum anyway you know
0: right and you know although I think sales is better at visuals that people give him credit for when he does something like that he is very subtle it's like Lone Star, a movie I hope we talk about sometime in the future, there's a scene where Chris Cooper's character is staring out, and then the camera moves, and then we see a younger version of his character and a younger version of Elizabeth Pena's character. She plays the woman he's been in love with his entire life, and they're talking, and then the camera back, pans back to Chris Cooper. So it's a way of going back, doing a flashback to the past without being obvious about it. And the same thing here and the cinematographer on Haney Dripper, by the way, was Dick Pope, who is mostly known for his work on uh, Mike Lee's movies. And he does a good job of bringing out the atmosphere in alabama and also lighting it without going overboard on the darkness
1: yeah he does he does a really good job and and like when you're outside in the cotton fields you're getting that that hazy dusty feeling and he's and he's really bringing that across to you you know it might have like slightly just a hair overexposed the image a little bit just to make it a little bit brighter for you and then likewise when you're in the bar it's also got a little bit of a hazy look but clearly for a different reason and again it just it just looks really really good and then when you're in the houses uh, you know when you when you're in um when you're in bertha's house when you're in um tyrone's house and, and the various places that you're in you don't get that everything is nice and sharp and clear and and Looks the way you imagine it should,
0: right? And that's especially true as well with the uh, scene at um, where is she? Oh, at Amanda Winship's house because that's where Delilah works, and she's played by the way by Mary Steenburgen. Uh, Since this is the rich old white woman's house, everything is fancy and brightly lit. Mm -hmm. And speaking of Steenburgen, although sales has only directed 18 movies to date, he does have somewhat of a stock company. And you see that through this movie as well. Uh, Steenburgen, for example, had been in Sunshine State and Casa de los Babies, which were two movies that sales had done earlier in the decade. And then uh, Daryl Edwards, who uh, plays uh, Shaq, Um, he was in Brother from Another Planet and City of Hope. Uh, Vondi Curtis Hall, who mm-hmm. plays Slick, the husband of Bertha May. He had been in um, Passion Fish. And then Tom Wright, who plays the guy who is trying to buy Tyrone out. He's been in the most sales movies. He was in The Brother from Another Planet. Mateswan, City of Hope. He's also in Passion Fish and Sunshine State. So, sales does have uh, quite a few actors that he comes back to and uses often. And they all work well for him here, uh, well, in general, but also here. Now, another constant um, in sales movies. Aside from his cast, is the theme that runs through, which is what do you give up and what do you lose when, or what do you gain when things change? And it's not just for the way that the music changes from the old-time um, songs that Bertha May is singing to the harder-edged rhythm and blues that Sonny performs, but also the way business uh, is conducted at Ty- with the uh, Honey Dripper and with the bar next door. You know, Tyrone knows that he's behind the times, but he's not quite sure how to get to where he needs to be until he gets the inspiration to uh book guitar Sam or have Sonny be it. So, you know, that's a theme that runs through the movie. And sales again does a good job of laying it out without being heavy-handed or obvious about it,
1: sure. I mean, similarly, you could you could say the same thing for several of the characters, like that. There is always going to be some kind of trade-off, even if it's something like you know, Maceo and getting married, and there is a reason why you know he you know he could lose you know maybe his brain pan not <laughs> getting hit in the head with a pot, or um, or or uh, Delilah. OK, who, you know, is being forced to make that choice between the world and the Lord. And, and uh, you know, it, it's not made entirely clear why, you know, joining the Lord means that she has to dump Tyrone altogether. Like, why is it such a drastic choice? But I get that it that it has to happen. And she is forced to, you know, decide I have to have one, but I'm going to have to give up the other in order to do it. So we see several characters going through these through these choices throughout this film.
0: Well, as to why, I mean, uh, bar is owning a bar is uh, considered uh, in some religious circles to being less than respectable, and then of course when this music takes off, like it would you know rock and roll and rhythm and blues were considered the devil's music back in the day so that's not so hard to understand
1: no but that but that wasn't Delilah's issue at that point because she didn't know that it existed until that that night when when she came back to the bar you know but the but the question is 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 really you know why are the two so irreconcilable that she can't be a woman of god
0: and stay stay with Tyrone well, it's not the music, it's the owning the bar, mm-hmm. I would argue, because again, that's not considered a respectable business. But let's talk about the music um, here. Um, Sales and uh, Maggie Renzi, who uh, was his producer, uh, they both cast Keb Mo because they were a big fan of his. And I've... Uh, been listening to some of his stuff in order to prepare for this and uh, i would uh, definitely agree he is one of the great musicians and then um you know sales has said that he got into rock and roll singers like Chuck berry because they told stories instead of just talking about, you know, women and things like that. You know, I mean, Chuck Berry did sing and write songs like that as well. But most of his stuff was stories and sales, even though he writes and directs movies that are more character driven than story driven, you can see that he does need to have some sort of story in there to connect with. And even though Sales, like a lot of directors in the 80s, you know, basically um, for money and, uh, you know, maybe curiosity as well, directed music videos. He directed three for Bruce Springsteen from his Born in the USA album. The title track. I'm on Fire and Glory Days. And except for Born in the USA, which was part concert, part impressionistic view, uh, the other two were basically story driven. You know, the idea of Glory Days, uh, Bruce's character is a former baseball player reliving his Glory Days. And I'm On Fire, Springsteen is um, a garage mechanic who has to think about whether or not he's going to go over and visit this attractive rich lady's house to drop off her car and maybe do something else. Uh, You know, those were both stories. So that's the type of music that he's been attracted to. And that's those are the types of songs that he and his usual composer Mason Daring wrote for the movies. So you can tell that in the songs that you hear as well throughout the movie. Do you have anything to add to that, Claude? Yeah, I'm sorry.
1: yeah, and I and I think it's it's important to note that like the last two songs that you hear through the film were specifically written by Sales and Daring together. So that would be China Doll, and uh, music keeps rolling on. Um, Sales only. I'm I'm just looking real quick here. He he. It looks like he wrote one other track for the film, um, or, or co right. rather.
0: But but those
1: are the two that really um, that really wrap the whole thing up.
0: Right. Most of the music in this. Most of the songs, I should say, in this, other than the ones that Sales and Darren co-wrote together, are old uh, standard songs or uh, old spirituals, uh, maybe. Yeah. Like the the one that they uh, sang in the church. Now, um, let's talk about the performances here. Uh, Danny Glover, um, this is one of the few times that um, he's playing a lead by himself as opposed to being a co-lead. Yeah. And um, he does, I think, a really good job of showing how Tyrone is a decent man altogether, even though he does have his flaws. And the fact that he's, able to make the decisions that he makes that he makes throughout the movie he convinces us that he's capable of that and so i think he it's not his best work but it's a really good performance
1: it and again you know you can see once again we've got that theme of, of making choices and what do you give up to get something and you can s- see that more often than not when we see him having to make those decisions that you could see kind of the wheels turning in his head as far as what are the implications if I should do this sort of this sort of thing. He takes that moment and he agonizes about it a little bit before he actually goes and does whatever he has to do and and so this isn't a guy who's acting strictly out of you know avarice or greed or 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 anger or frustration or desperation or whatever it is. I mean that some of these moves are definitely desperate ones, but he still, thinks about, like, what happens after. And and sometimes, as we get near the end of the film, he continues to think about what happens after. He has that moment. He's like, what if I've lost Delilah? And, and so he's still worried about it, even though, you know, that die is cast, and, and we're in that period between when it leaves the hand and it hits the table, and he just doesn't know what's going to happen. Right.
0: And then also, very good here is Lisa Gay Hamilton. Now, uh, we talked about her very briefly when we talked about Jackie Brown, because she appears very briefly in that movie. Most people probably know her best as one of the lawyers in the David E. Kelly show, The Practice, uh, with Dylan McDermott. But she also convinces you of the turmoil that's going through Delilah about the choices that she has to make. Now, she actually would go on to appear in what is to date the last movie that Sales has directed, which is the movie Gopher Sisters, but she is uh, very good as well.
1: Yeah I, I especially liked her in that revival tent scene where you know we still don't know whether she's going to you know stick with Tyrone or not and and again we can see her genuinely like having almost an existential crisis about you know is she going to continue walking forward or not and 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 it was, it was just, yeah, uh, a great performance there. I liked, her, I liked her generally, and even when she finally makes that decision and she pops up in the bar uh, to, to offer um, Sheriff Pugh the, the chicken, and she's just all brightness and smiles, and it's like, how you doing? I'm ready to make chicken for you, and, and that kind of thing. And, and, and so that she's able to, to make those switches, I, and, and as hard as they are, you know, that, that uh, I, yeah, I, I, I definitely was able to appreciate the, the, the job that she did there.
0: And you don't catch her acting, which is nice. No, And then there's two other actors I want to bring up. Um, The first one is Yaya DaCosta, who, of course, plays uh, Tyrone and... uh, plays China Doll, Tyrone and Delilah's daughter. At the time, she was best known for... Uh, being on America's uh, Next Top Model. So she, yeah, America's Next Top Model. So she was a model first, and she really hadn't acted much before, but she holds her own with everyone, and she's gone on to do a lot of TV. She was on All My Children for a while, and then she's been in a couple of uh, Chicago TV shows: Chicago Fire, Chicago PD, and Chicago Med, all playing the same character. But even though you know there may be a couple awkward moments here and there, that suits her character pretty well. Um, whether she's with Glover or Hamilton or Gary Clark Jr., who's also good, not just when he's playing the music. Yeah, she was, uh, I think, about
1: 25 when she did this film, something like that, in her early 20s, anyway. And she was meant to play, uh, you know, a, a, a teenage girl, or you know, in her late teens, getting ready to to move on and do the next thing, and. You know, I I think for the most part, she she carried it off very well. There were a couple of times where she kind of reduced herself into like little girl status and and almost talking in a a, a childlike manner. And other times where she was, you know, she was in there and uh, like flirting with Sonny and talking to him, like, you know, in in those scenes. And, and, you know, this was clearly like, you know, this young woman on the cusp of adulthood. And I, I bought
0: everything she did. I love her to death. Right, and the one character I want to mention, one other actor I want to mention is Charles S. Dutton. Now, um, he gives a lot of speeches in this movie, yeah. and he brings the... I hesitate to say, hesitate to say comic relief, but he does bring out the humor in the movie as McAo, even though... According to him on an interview on the DVD that I have, uh, one of the parts of his character that doesn't get mentioned in the movie, but he decided that this is one of the reasons why he's reluctant to marry is that his character has lung cancer. Ew. And you may get a hint of it in the way that there's a couple times where he's walking pretty slowly and trying to catch his breath. But other than that, it's pretty subtle. But anyway, he does bring the humor out very well in in this movie. And he also handles the speeches very well.
1: Yeah. And, and that's the kind of thing that, that he, he's just generally adept at at doing that sort of thing where he can, you know, keep things light. And, and, and even when he's talking about fairly serious subjects, he can still manage to, to not really bring you down with it, but he does impress upon you just, you know, where this whole thing stands, you know, and, and at the same time, you know, if, if he needs to be funny, he can be funny if he does, if he needs to not be funny. You know, that, that's okay, too. And again, he's, like, very good at, like, switching back and forth. And sometimes within the same paragraph is, is like, you know, he can give you the dire warning and then, like, hit you with a punchline at the end. And, you know, you actually break a little bit from relief of, of what he's had to say. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I don't think I've seen anything in that he's done where he's actually bad. So maybe you have because you've got a broader knowledge background. But I just liked everything I've seen him in.
0: I I have not seen him be bad in anything either. Uh, but anyway, um, two more things I want to mention before we wrap this up. Uh-huh. Uh, first is sales cast a lot of locals in this movie as well, mostly in small roles. But it does add to the atmosphere that he captures pretty well, very well here. Uh, The second thing is a more broad point. Uh, In the last few years, there's been a lot of discussion, not only of trying to make the types of stories that get told on film and in TV be more diverse, you know allowing more african american filmmakers or other filmmakers of color women filmmakers lgbt filmmakers to tell their stories but also the idea that there should be uh more diversity in the cast of white filmmakers and tv shows ba- made by white showrunners um there was a uh, Interview Lisa Kudrow did recently about the anniversary of Friends and the special that they recorded, and she brought that up. That that was a common criticism of Friends about the fact that there were all all the six major characters and almost everyone who showed up on the show was white. And she admitted that you know it was done by someone who is writing from their own experience and they need to experience that diversity or they need to get people in the writing room who had experienced that diversity. And the reason why I'm bringing all of this up is it doesn't get mentioned a lot, but one of sales virtues, I think, is that throughout his directing career, he has told stories about people of color. Now, admittedly, not his first three movies, Return of Sakaka 7, which we discussed, and then his follow-up movies, Liana and Baby, It's You, although Liana and Baby, It's You were both uh, told from the point of view of women, and Liana had a lesbian, uh, had a couple of lesbian characters and was about a lesbian relationship as well. So he wasn't just telling straight white male stories. And then starting with his fourth movie, Brother from Another Planet, which is set in Harlem and has a mostly African-American cast, he's told quite a few movies that are either about all or mostly all people of color, like Brother from Another Planet, Honey Dripper, uh, and Men with Guns, but also movies where um, African Americans, Latino Americans, and maybe other people of color play a large role in them, such as City of Hope, Passion Fish, Lone Star, Sunshine State and amigo and even in movies like casa de los babies which is about several white women who come to mexico to adopt the baby since they can't conceive he pays attention to the mexican characters in the movie so it isn't just about the white woman and he's not just interested in their point of view he's interested in the mexicans point of view as well yeah, and and the
1: thing the thing that's um, important also to note is that not only does he do it, he does it well. You know, as I said yeah. way up at the beginning, is like he pulls together a couple of a bunch of things you would consider like, oh God, look at these stereotypes here. But he manages to to frame them in such a way that you really don't find yourself going, ew. <laughs> you know, he, right. he he pulls them into a story that that is cohesive and 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 meaningful and uh and, and not at all um you know while while they're while they're, they're while the tropes in a way they don't descend into stereotypes i think that's the best way to frame it
0: right so do you have anything else you want to add before we wrap this up i think not all right so in part two we will be talking about inside of lewin davis
1: Yes, that's coming up immediately in your podcast feed, so stick around.